Welcome back to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Today I talked to Dr. Patrick Wilson, author of The Athlete's Guide, about one of the most challenging pillars of any sport, nutrition and GI distress. I think Dr. Wilson's book is an essential read for any athlete and encourage you to check it out. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I was scheduled, I was slated to do Ironman Wisconsin last September. It got pushed back to this upcoming September. So yeah. instead I did a full distance by myself, just kind of uh, with family supporting me and had terrible GI distress <laughs> during the run, which prompted my parents gifting me this book. Oh, nice. So we've come full circle now. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, the the distance, obviously, for a lot of those events, I mean, it's when you start looking at 100-mile runs or Ironmans or those types of races, I mean, the, the prevalence of GI issues is just yeah. kind of like the sharks. So mm. I mean, some of it is just honestly inevitable to some degree. I think it's trying to manage it uh, the best you can. Um, and try and resolve any issues that are kind of obvious mistakes or things yeah. that you're really doing incorrectly or, or not thinking through and and it's really making the situation worse yeah in some cases i mean you're, you're probably going to have some level of gastrointestinal issues when you get to those distances and those stresses especially like in the heat i mean it's it's hard to completely you know avoid those issues but um yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess let's just dive right in maybe to, sure. uh, to some of your background. So how, how did you, what, what was your journey like to kind of getting into the kind of sports side of nutrition research? Yeah, kind of a long journey in terms of, you know, I started off doing a undergraduate degree in dietetics that was at Minnesota State Mankato. And I knew, you know, I was always interested in sport. I played basketball, ran cross country track in high school was always a pretty good athlete. I mean, in terms of like coming from a small town, um, wasn't good enough to play collegiately at anything, I think in terms of scholarship, but yeah, I mean, I was always interested in sports. So that kind of piqued my interest when I started studying nutrition, I was thinking about how could I, you know, make myself better or how could have I made myself better when I was in high school or when I was more competitive, just thinking back on some of the dumb things I did as a, you know, teenager or as a high schooler that probably wasn't very good for my performance. So from there, you know, I did an internship at the Mayo Clinic, which was a required component of, you know, getting my registered dietitian credential. And then I did a master's uh, and PhD at the University of Minnesota in the kinesiology department. So, you know, I kind of progressively got more and more interested in studying nutrition as a means to impact, you know, performance and recovery and gastrointestinal function um, just over time. I mean, it was, in some ways, I just, I was studying things more related directly to performance mm -hmm. and realized that gastrointestinal issues was a big part of why sometimes athletes don't perform as well as they want to. And when I got into that research, you know, looked at some of the things that were understudied and decided to try and make a little bit of my mark there. Mm -hmm. And some of the research that I've done. So it was kind of a roundabout route to getting there. It wasn't something that I started off as this is what I'm going to study. It just happened to be one of the types of variables that I was measuring for some of the studies that I was doing uh, more related to like carbohydrate supplementation during prolonged, yeah. um, prolonged exercise. Yeah. And I guess another a, a follow-up kind of would be what, what was the process of kind of delving into your book, The Athlete's Gut? I've got it here. Yeah. Highly recommend. So the one thing that struck me, uh, I guess, before I let you answer would be kind of like, it's not dull. Like you, you instill, you know, comedy into it as well. It's, it's a, it's a very fascinating read. It's also like grabs your attention, which is a lot, I would, I would say fairly unlike, uh, like what a lot of like very, you know, clinical mm -hmm. kind of research intensive books that have recommendations are like, this was very manageable and like grab the reader. So yeah, oh, it's just like, I think, you know, in some ways I lucked out in terms of I started writing this book without having a publisher lined up, without really knowing exactly how it was going to end up. Um, I don't even honestly really remember what was really the thing that triggered me to decide to start writing a book. But um, once I got into it, 
and really decided that's what it was going to focus on. Because I think originally I was thinking I was going to do some sort of sport nutrition book that involves something with gastrointestinal issues as a part of it. But, you know, there's, there's already so many sport nutrition books out there that that really wasn't unique. So I decided to really focus it on the guts and gut issues in athletes because it's such a common problem. And honestly, I mean, there's a whole book you could write about it. So uh, I started putting that together, having the rough outline of the, the various chapters. Once I kind of had a very rough first draft, uh, you know, I sent it to a variety of potential publishers and the one that I ended up with VeloPress, you know, they, um, they did a good job of, you know, pushing me to make it more accessible. I had some kind of humor in there and some kind of, you know, anecdotes and things like that. But with the idea that this was going to be going more towards the average athlete or coach and not for, you know, scientists or researchers or, you know, people who are used to more of a very dry read, mm. you know, I really tried to make it more interesting, humorous on occasion. I don't think myself <laughs> is or anything, but I tried to make it, you know, at least entertaining to read at times. Um, and it just kind of took shape from, you know, when I, when I really signed on with them to the point where it was finished and having good uh, editors along the way, uh, that's kind of how it ended up being, I think, um, more accessible probably than it maybe otherwise would have been if I just kind of wrote it on my own and, and tried to self-publish it or something like that. I maybe may have kept it a little bit more um, kind of in the heavy research dry yeah. <laughs> area as opposed to making it a little, a little bit more accessible yeah. to the average athlete. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think from, from my read, it really did a phenomenal job. So kudos to you of striking that really nice balance of giving a wealth of information, you know, some of which that I, you know, I, I consider myself fairly well-versed in kind of nutrition GI distress, but there was plenty that I had not, you know, I, I wasn't fully like implementing or comprehending beforehand and kind of this bridged the gap, kind of filling in a lot of the, the missing pieces in my nutrition strategy. Yeah. Uh, so I guess let's, let's dive right into content. So maybe if we can just dive directly into kind of the anatomy of the gut from, from mouth to, mm -hmm. to the exit, what mm -hmm. are we looking at from there with fueling? Yeah. When you think about the anatomy of the, the GI tract or the gastrointestinal tract, I mean, you, you've got kind of obviously up front more the mechanical digestion going on in the mouth. I mean, it's really where your body is doing a lot of the actual physical breakdown of what you're eating. Now, if you're drinking a sports beverage or eating a gel, there's not a whole lot really that needs to go into that in terms of breaking it down. But obviously, you know, before exercise at your regular meals, or if you're eating a bar or something like that during competition, I mean, it, it's a critical function of your mouth, obviously, is to physically break down that food so that it is much easier to chemically digest once it actually gets further down the GI tract. So, right, the teeth, the muscles, everything, the tongue, all working together to break that down. And then there is some chemical digestion going on in the mouth. It's fairly limited, but it does start in the mouth with like uh, salivary amylase, which mm -hmm. breaks down some of your longer carbohydrates. Not to understate the role of the esophagus, but it's largely a transport tube. I mean, it is impressive in terms of what it actually does. Um, we usually take it for granted. It's largely a transport tube that when it works well, you don't think about it. Uh, when it doesn't work well, then it becomes obviously an issue for people who have you know, a variety of medical conditions. My wife is actually has worked as an endoscopy nurse for a number of years, and she can tell stories about you know, dysfunction in the esophagus if things aren't going right. Uh, you know, medical intervention gets in, involved. Um, it's something we a lot of times take for granted uh, when we're when we're healthy and everything's functioning well. So I, you know, I don't spend a huge amount of time on the esophagus in the book um, beyond talking about uh, just some of the basics in terms of how it helps to move the food from your mouth into your stomach and then keep the food in your stomach. Mm -hmm. So the stomach is, is another site of mechanical digestion. There's obviously the churning, the contractions of the stomach muscle going on there that helps to further mix and churn and break things down physically. Uh, but you really start to have more chemical digestion going on in the stomach, particularly of, of protein. So you've got uh, enzymes that are released, you've got hydrochloric acid, 
and that starts to kind of unravel and um, take apart the actual protein to a degree so that once it gets into the intestines, it's much more manageable to uh, continue to be digested and then ultimately absorbed. Mm-hmm. So a big thing for athletes, I'll point out with the stomach, is that there are a variety of things that dictate how fast food and fluid leave the stomach and how fast you know it empties. So during exercise, during a triathlon, during a marathon, obviously the kind of goal is to make sure that you're emptying the fluid, you're emptying the carbohydrates uh, in a kind of consistent way so that it's not sitting in your stomach like a brick. Mm -hmm. So I do talk a fair amount in the book about things that alter gastric or stomach emptying and things that make a difference when it comes to how quickly that happens. You don't want it too fast, right? Because if things just dump into your small intestine, that's a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't, you don't want it to be emptying too slow either, because then you've got a full stomach and you can't really function well when you're full of fluid and food and it feels like you got to throw up, right? Mm-hmm. All right? So once we move beyond the stomach, then we're talking about the small intestine, hugely important for uh, the absorption of nutrients. That's where the bulk of the actual absorption happens is in the small intestine. You have uh, accessory organs like the pancreas, the liver, the gallbladder that are secreting things into the small intestine to uh, further digest those nutrients that are emptying from the stomach. And then ultimately to get those very small uh, particles essentially absorbed through the, uh, through the gut wall. Because mm-hmm. really, if, if, if your nutrients aren't digested into these very small molecules like simple sugars and amino acids and um, uh, fatty acids, individual fatty acids, it's your gut really doesn't absorb those things. Mm -hmm. So you need to break them down into these small molecules to actually get them absorbed. Otherwise, they'll just kind of stay in your gut. uh, And that can kind of wreak havoc in terms of causing, you know, a variety of symptoms, cramping, loose stools, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, beyond that, you, we've got the large intestine or the colon has a variety of functions to reabsorb some of the remaining water that your small intestine didn't get to uh, reabsorb some of the electrolytes. Uh, also, it's a big site of fermentation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's where a lot of the fiber and unabsorbed carbohydrate and other nutrients gets uh, kind of processed by the bacteria there. And then the average size person probably has 35 to 40 trillion bacterial cells. Most of those um, are in your colon. So we know, you know, it has a big impact on health and function. We're still trying to figure out exactly what that means for athletes. The research is very, very uh, new and novel when it comes to the role of kind of that, what we call the microbiome for athletes. But uh, you know, we undoubtedly know that it makes a difference for health and human function. Um, you know, that, that's kind of a very broad overview of, of uh, the gut. You've kind of go from more mechanical to chemical digestion as you go farther down. And then the last part of it, the colon, the large intestine is kind of a big fermentation center, as well as a place where stool is formed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, your gut has a lot of different functions, is something that's very easy to underappreciate. But if you have major GI issues, then it obviously becomes very apparent to you how important gut is. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So with that, I guess mainly let's let's uh, start to dive into kind of what can go wrong, uh, mm-hmm. especially looking through the lens of athletic performance. So one one thing, an uh, in, in, an interesting read that you kind of talk to in your book is kind of using thirst to dictate, uh, kind of how much nutrition you're taking on board, which, which I thought was interesting because I, I, I kind of have seen several different like groups of thought. And one of which that I know is fairly prevalent with athletes, especially if you're considering like a hot race is like, people will get into their head and think, Oh, if I'm thirsty, I'm already too far behind. So I guess my question would be, what do we know about using thirst as that dictate for how much we're taking on? And as well as is kind of that physiological, thirst that we're feeling, how is that tied to the gastric emptying? Is that a good, is it related? Are we, st- are we feeling thirst because we've properly kind of emptied? 
That's a good question. I'll answer the second question first, the link between thirst and gastric emptying. I'm not sure that there's been much study on those two variables together. Um, overall, my thoughts on what is the appropriate drinking strategy during, this is during exercise. Mm -hmm. There's different recommendations that I would make pre-exercise and post-exercise, but at least during exercise, uh, it is hugely dependent on the duration of, of activity that you're doing. So there are, you know, meta-analyses, systematic reviews that have been published saying that thirst works as well as any other approach. Um, but those studies are largely less than two hours. And most of them use cycling. And that's not a problem. It's just, yeah. you know, you kind of have to realize that much of the research on the performance effects of drinking the thirst versus a more maybe regimented approach, most of them are pretty short. You know, it's hard to do studies where you ask subjects to come in and exercise, let's say for three or four or five hours, mm. come back in again, have them doing that same task, just with a different strategy. I mean, there's a reason why there's not a lot of studies on a variety of nutrition, you know, approaches for things like ultra running for iron racing. Uh, so a lot of what we know is extrapolated from shorter studies, which it's a problem, you know? So I would say is if you're doing something less than 90 minutes, thirst, almost the vast majority of cases is going to be adequate for most people, assuming you are starting off well hydrated. If you're not starting off well hydrated, then maybe not. Um, once you get beyond 90 minutes, two hours, then it becomes, I think, um, more variable. Some athletes may do perfectly fine with just kind of drinking based off of, you know, when they feel thirsty, when they feel it's appropriate to drink. Whereas other athletes are not going to do particularly well, probably, probably with that approach. Mm -hmm. You could look at studies where they look at body mass losses, like during a marathon or an Ironman. And there is huge uh, between person variability in terms of the amount of weight that people are losing and how much they drink. So I think, you know, there are going to be some people who will be fine with thirsts, even for longer events, but then there are going to be some, um, for whatever reason, maybe they, uh, maybe they don't uh, kind of, maybe they're not as, as in tune with their sensation of thirst, or maybe they're just mm -hmm. thinking about other stuff during the race, or they're prioritizing other things uh, where they are under drinking to the point where it's affecting their performance. And that may be more likely in some circumstances like hot environments where um, smaller, smaller decrements in hydration status are going to be more likely to hurt performance in a hot environment mm -hmm. than in other environment. So it is honestly one of the more controversial areas of sport nutrition is, is what do you do for hydration, particularly for long events, mm -hmm. things like a regular marathon even or ultra marathons or an Ironman, you know, there's a variety of recommendations out there that run the gamut from thirst works best to, you know, why leave it to thirst if there's a chance that it's, it's not the optimal approach, why not take a little bit more of a um, scientific approach to it and, and calculate your sweat rate and try and drink a percentage of your sweat rate. You know, you yeah. don't drink so much that you're gaining weight during the course of an event, that's clearly you're drinking too much. Uh, but, you know, getting an idea about your sweat rate in different environments, from my perspective, isn't a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it's, it's interesting to hear you mention that, you know, we don't have much information research wise as to these longer duration events, because I, I think once you start to delve into the, the Ironman or even marathon, marathon to like Ironman distance, so we're talking something that's going on 10 plus 14 plus hours, I think people really end up being more fearful of under consuming than over consuming when we, we know obviously that GI issues can be just as detrimental as what you'd feel from, you know, bonking or under, mm -hmm. under fueling. So it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that, you know, not much, not much work has been done in those longer durations, obviously yeah. it makes sense when you're asking, yeah. you know, subjects to participate. And I will say that there, there are shorter studies that have tried asking people to drink an amount of fluid that would mostly replace all their sweats, and it consistently causes GI discomfort. So, mm -hmm. you know, you also don't want to force feed yourself to the point where you, you know, you're trying to manage your risk of dehydration and you're trying to replace all your sweat losses, uh, but it's making you so uncomfortably full. I mean, 
you know, I think intuitively most athletes probably wouldn't do that, but there are some studies that have tried doing that to say, okay, maybe even if they have GI issues, the benefits to hydration would outweigh that. And it, it you know, it doesn't really seem like it probably does. I mean, because mm-hmm. if you don't feel well, you feel bloated, you feel uncomfortably full and, and nauseated, you know, you're not probably going to perform well either. So there's a, a little bit of a delicate balance between um, drinking too much and drinking too little. And it's dependent yeah. on the situation in person. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess staying with the theme of kind of liquid hydration, it seems to me, you kind of have you have like this slider bar of like, if you're if you're targeting a set number of calories, and you know, nutrients with electrolytes, you can kind of adjust volume versus concentration, right? So, and so how, how do we kind of tailor, I guess, how, how do we see the effects differ from a lower concentration, higher volume product to a lower volume, higher concentration product with, with affecting performance? Yeah, it's interesting when you get into like beverage concentration of carbohydrates um, versus volume. Those interactions have been studied a little bit, but most of the time, you know, you, you know, you'll have a study that kind of looks at uh, targeting a specific beverage volume or targeting a specific carbohydrate rate. And there aren't a lot of studies that have looked at the interaction of those particular factors because, you know, obviously there's there's maybe competing goals there, right? You may be trying to deliver a certain amount of fluid per hour and you may be trying to deliver a certain amount of of carbohydrate per hour. And um, that may make it a little bit challenging or difficult to figure out, you know, how to do that. Do you rely exclusively on beverages? Do you use fluids and gels? Do you use fluids and solids? Um, what I'll say is there's, again, there's not really like a preset recommendation that works for everybody. I would say that higher concentration beverages, you know, if you look at something like a juice or if you took a flat soda or made your own at home, I mean, just Mm. put in table sugar into water at a concentration that approaches something like a, uh, you know, a soda or juice, you know, 10 to 12% or higher, in large volumes, if you consume those types of beverages in relatively large volumes, they fairly consistently cause more GI issues in laboratory studies than something like a Gatorade, which is mm. 6%. Um, now that said, those studies are, are basically having those individuals consume similar volumes of those beverages. And you may, have to con- you may get to consume less if you have a concentrated beverage, right? I mean, that's maybe a benefit of using something concentrated is you're not consuming so much volume. So it becomes challenging, honestly, to kind of take sometimes what's done in laboratory studies, uh, very controlled, and then extrapolate to how that's gonna play out in an event that's you know, 10 hours, and you know, the person is changing their feeling throughout and their, their hydration throughout. Um, I would say, generally speaking, that if you're gonna use a concentrated beverage, especially if you're gonna try and uh, feed carbohydrate at a high rate, yeah, you, you, you definitely want to practice that. You want to pick products that you know work for you. And you probably want to train your gut some uh, to handle that during some of your longer training sessions to know that you can actually you know, handle that concentration and, and that rate of feeding. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to really push the envelope in terms of what you're trying to do with, uh, with carbohydrate. Yeah, absolutely. That, so this might be a good transition point for us to discuss kind of what we're looking at with absorption, uh, maybe on the small intestine side. So obviously there, you know, when you, when you first kind of endeavor into sports nutrition, if as an athlete, uh, at least if you look at recommendations, it's like there's fairly standard, you know, calorie recommendations. I, I had a coach at one point that had given me, you know, very high aggressive carbohydrate recommendations and those mm-hmm. ended up not working for me. So obviously very personal. So yeah. maybe what are the limiting factors when we think about how, how much calories you can put back into the system? Yeah. And this is another one that when I would say, you know, it's working with athletes or thinking about what recommendations you'd give them, it, it depends a lot on duration of exercise, uh, the intensity of exercise, and then the level of athlete. You know, it, it's very different for somebody who's a higher level person who has a very high rate of carbohydrate burning per hour versus somebody who's, you know, kind of the tail end of a in Ironman or something where, you know, they're burning a lot of energy, but their actual rate of carbohydrate um, oxidation or burning isn't as high. So, you know, there's a, a variety of things I would look at first before I would make a recommendation about 
you know, this is what you should maybe try and target for higher level athletes who are pushing, you know, the envelope and who are really trying to, you know, win races and things like that. You know, there is the potential that they can go up to maybe something like uh, 90 to 100 grams an hour. There was recently a paper that trained or, or said they trained athletes, runners to do 120 grams an hour during like a mountain marathon. You know, I don't know. Um, I'd like to see that replicated and, and, and actually a more systematic evaluation of gut symptoms because I think that study didn't really systematically evaluate uh, some of their GI symptoms. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, there's a variety of studies that suggest you can go up to around roughly 100 grams an hour, plus or minus, you know, 10 grams at the, at the very high end. I mean, that's really pushing it. Is everybody going to tolerate that? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, there's going to be some people who probably just aren't going to be able to handle that amount. Um, and you need to realize that and adjust plans accordingly. So uh, when would be a situation where you would ever try and push that that amount. And that would really only be something that's longer than two hours. I mean, that's kind of the bare minimum, I would say. Anything shorter than that, uh, and there's really no reason to ingest that much carbohydrate that aggressively because for the most part, what you store in your muscle is going to be enough to get you through, you know, 90 minutes to two hours. Yeah. Um, plus, if you're drinking a little bit of a beverage or taking in a little bit of carbohydrate, that'll help you get you through that sort of event. So it's really once you get it kind of beyond two hours where it probably starts to make a difference. Um, and if you're going to do that amount, you know, more than, let's say more than one gram a minute or more than 60 grams an hour, then you want to pay attention to the source of the carbohydrate that you are ingesting. Uh, there's different doors, little protein doors that are used to get the sugars inside your intestinal cells you know, from the tube, the hollow tube into your cells in the intestines um, and glucose and fructose are lying different doors. Mm -hmm. So if you feed too much of one sugar, you basically saturate those, those transporters or those doors, they get all jammed up. And when sugar stays in your gut unabsorbed, it causes problems, you know, mm -hmm. water get pulled out into the tube. You're going to have probably cramping, loose stools, gas, bloating, uh, nausea, uh, you know, things that are not conducive to performance. So if an athlete does decide they want to go above 50, 60 grams an hour, then picking something that has a, a relatively equal balance of glucose and fructose would be a, a recommendation in terms of the source of sugar. Um, you know, there's some other things you can look at as well, but uh, yeah, once you get above that level, that's certainly something you want to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're dealing kind of with that that satur saturation factor that that would be an athlete who is over consumed or is dealing with a concentration they can't handle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, your, your saturation point for the glucose transporter, which is uh, the technical term for his SGLT one. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is topped out probably around like 50 grams an hour in that ballpark. So in theory, let's say you consumed 75 grams an hour of, of something that just had glucose in it, even if it was just maltodextrin, which is like mm -hmm. a kind of a long chain, uh, long chains of glucose. So if you ingested 75 grams of that an hour, that means probably, you know, 20 grams of that is not getting absorbed um, effectively. And when it stays in your gut unabsorbed, it causes those gastrointestinal issues. I mean, beyond that, it's also hard for your stomach to empty that much carbohydrates. Um, so not only in the intestines, but in the stomach, it's, you're going to feel like you've got a brick in your stomach if it's not. Yeah. So that's the part of the rationale for mixing those sugars is both the glucose and fructose transporters, you know, probably have a capacity of around 40 to, you know, 45 to 50 grams an hour. You add those together and you get, you know, around, you know, 90 grams to hundred grams an hour total. If you're using an equal mix of glucose and fructose. You can probably push that up through, you know, repeated training of your gut. There's some data in animals su suggest that you can increase the expression of those transporters in the intestine through, you know, a high carbohydrate diet that hasn't been super well studied in humans, but, um, you know, anecdotally, it seems like some athletes are able to tolerate pretty high amounts, you know, hundred plus uh, yeah. per hour in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
an interesting question that I would have kind of related would be, do we have, so if, if we use thirst as an analog for kind of liquid volume, do we have a good analog for kind of calorie density of, of a product or like in, in my mind, I feel like, you know, if, if you train so much with, you know, your specific sports drink, do you build an association with your thirst that is also related to kind of that macronutrient composition with carbohydrate? You know, I don't know. That's an interesting question. A lot of the perceptual stuff as relates to taste and, um, you know, thirst and some of those things um, are not, you know, in terms of how that relates to feeling are not well studied. So I know there's a, a, another researcher that I've uh, I'm currently working on a paper with, with a variety of others on actually on ultra running and some of the fueling stuff and limits of performance to that. Uh, and he's done some work on taste um, and it's, it's changes with ultra marathoning and um, how hunger changes and things like that. And, and honestly, I don't know. I mean, short answers. I don't know. I'm not entirely mm -hmm. sure on that one. That's an area where we certainly need some more, more work. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess um, moving on to kind of those longer distances, how, how do we see things change? The situation change when we start to introduce solid kind of nutrition products as opposed to a, a pure kind of liquid yeah. strategy. There's some interesting work that has compared the same amount of carbohydrate delivered from a beverage, from a gel in a bar. Mm -hmm. And a couple of studies have shown that the bar seems to cause more gastrointestinal issues, more maybe more fullness, things like that. Mm -hmm. My thought on that is number one, a bar is different from a gel and liquid carbohydrate because it also tends to have a little bit of protein and fat in it. I mean, most bars have at least some. Yeah. So you are getting some extra calories. Um, so that may be part of the reason why there's some extra fullness and, and mildly higher uh, levels of GI upset. The other thing is maybe people just aren't chewing them well enough. I mean, mm. you think the race, you're just sometimes kind of scarfing things down. Yeah to get it down. And we know from other studies uh, outside of the realm of sport that if you blend something up, you know, you take soup, you blend it up, or you take solid foods, you blend it up, put it in the stomach, it empties from the stomach faster than something that's larger particle size. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it, it comes down to what athletes are accustomed to, what they practice with. And if they're going to use uh, solid foods, it's probably you know, a good idea to give it a good chew because uh, <laughs> over, you know, the course of a 10 hour race, everything that you put in there is going to come kind of have a cumulative effect over time. And if you're not chewing the foods that you're eating really well, and you're relying a lot on solid foods, then that could potentially be a problem later on in the, uh, uh, later on in the race. Um, you know, but, but of course, solid foods have advantages or gels or supplements have advantages in that it's, easier to target a carbohydrate delivery rate, you know, if you're just going to rely on a beverage, uh, that becomes a little bit problematic, especially if it was like, you know, Gatorade or something like yeah. that. <laughs> There's yeah. some studies that tried, you know, feeding people a high rate of carbohydrate from Gatorade or similar beverages that are about 6% uh, in a laboratory setting. And it's a crazy volume of beverage that they end up, eating. you know, it's yeah. like, if you want to get 60 grams an hour from Gatorade, that's a liter per hour. Oh my, yeah to target 90 grams it's one and a half liters per hour which is probably three times easily three times is what the average runner might drink yeah. On the yeah 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 that's yeah that's hard to imagine being able to stomach that much uh so i guess so kind of similar uh you know we briefly mentioned kind of how how what what where kind of the energy is coming from with athletes based on intensity so when we're dealing with higher intensity activity, obviously we're preferentially utilizing energy from carbohydrate. But then when we start to delve into kind of ultra marathon or Ironman for most people, uh, unless you're, you know, Jan Ferdino who breaks the world record, uh, you know, you're, you're preferentially using more kind of fatty acid metabolism to kind of drive some of that energy production. When we're dealing with a situation where we're doing a lower intensity activity, does it make sense to still be delivering uh, our nutrition from carbohydrate or, and, and then I guess, especially when we get to even the longer, you know, hundred milers, 200 milers, does it make sense to bring on more fat? Is that more manageable? During the race itself? Yep. Yeah. 
Uh, that's a really good question that is uh, largely based in speculation and anecdote. Mm-hmm. Again, because of the lack of controlled studies on fueling uh, at those longer events. You know, my thought is there is, you know, probably some distance where, uh, where higher fat diets um, are going to be, you know, either equal to or in some cases maybe advantageous to higher carbohydrate diets in some athletes uh, as you maybe get beyond four or five, six hours, something like that. Um, the reliance on fat in those events becomes so significant that I think theoretically there is some advantages for some athletes potentially, mm-hmm. especially among those who do not do well with um, feeling during their events. Like if they, they have a hard time tolerating carbohydrate during their longer events, they, they almost always get GI upsets or they have issues with um, those sorts of problems. Then, you know, that, that's maybe a situation where an athlete could try a higher fat diet and, uh, you know, rely less exogenously on fuel carbohydrate, particularly during their longer events. Now, would it make sense to ingest more fat during the event? Um, you know, it's, fat's a little bit different in that it takes longer to, um, the fat that you ingest, it takes it longer to get to the end point of being burned. Mm-hmm. Carbohydrate kind of gets absorbed in the bloodstream, goes to the working muscle, it gets burned pretty quickly. Longer chain fat uh, doesn't work the same way. Um, a lot of the fat you're burning is coming from your stored adipose tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, yeah, it's, it's an, a more of an unanswered question at longer distances. How much fat should you be consuming? Is it really getting burned during that, um, during that type of duration and to what extent? Those are some kind of unanswered questions. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think... I think there's definitely a place for high fat diets with respect to ultra endurance uh, competition. Some athletes do quite well on them. Um, some athletes do very well on high carbohydrate diets. I've seen on social media, the, the end of the spectrum, very, very high level athletes, you know, winning races, breaking records on a high carbohydrate approach and some on a high fat approach. So you have examples of athletes succeeding both ways um, in those ultra endurance communities. So, um, you know, it's hard to say scientifically because it's just very difficult to do controlled research mm-hmm. at those distances. Yeah. The high fat approach kind of uh, brings us an, another question to my mind that, that I would be interested to hear your thoughts on would be the, how, how that would change kind of electrolyte replacement capacity, right? Cause we're not, we're not getting any assistance from like an insulin or any kind of bringing, bringing in more energy to the cells from kind of an insulin spike. Uh, for electrolytes, I mean, in terms of uh, tying with higher fat intake, you know, one thing to be cognizant of, of is, you know, whenever you change macronutrient composition, uh, if you think you're going from a high carb to a high fat diet, it's not just the carbohydrate or fat that typically changes. It's a whole host of other mm-hmm. nutrients that you're consuming that's going to change along with it. Vitamin, mineral profiles are going to change in those diets. Typically, fiber intake is going to change and be different. Um, so that that's not directly answering your question, I know, but it, you know, it's when you change diets from high carb to high fat, it's not just the carbohydrate and fat that are changing. There's other considerations that you'd want to pay attention to. Uh, in terms of, you know, the loss of electrolytes or the retention of electrolytes on those dietary approaches, I don't, I'm not entirely sure what the effect would be. You know, I haven't yeah. seen much research on that. I think I've, I've seen kind of in the literature surrounding the keto diet, they tend to be worse retainers of kind of electrolytes, mainly just due to kind of a glycogen depletion. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of interested in probing. Yeah, that does remind me there's some studies I know um, where they've had to uh, take into consideration uh, mineral intake because of some of those issues. I know uh, I want to say Louise Burke and some of her colleagues were um, making considerations on that. Some of the recent studies they've done on keto, uh, keto diets and race walkers and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um... I guess kind of on, on the fat topic, M- MCT is kind of an interesting interesting strategy that I've seen used for fueling as a way to kind of get faster absorption from a fat. 
Mm-hmm. Like, could you give some information, you know, relevant to kind of MCT as it's been used for performance? Yeah. So the I mentioned just a bit ago that the long chain fats, the fats that are mostly in the foods that people eat. I mean, from the typical foods in the average person diet, most of it is in the form of what we call like a long chain type uh, fatty acid. Uh, those, like I said, are not always burned right away uh, after you ingest them. Uh, they're digested and absorbed a little bit differently from carbohydrates and fats. They end up in the lymphatic system first. Uh, whereas medium chain triglycerides, MCTs, those are actually more absorbed similarly to things like uh, sugars and amino acids where they go more directly into the bloodstream and are probably used for energy more readily than long chain fats. So th- there definitely have been studies where they've tried giving people medium chain uh, triglycerides or fats to see whether or not that enhances endurance performance. And the big issue has been gastrointestinal intolerance. So in high dosages, it's pretty consistent that if you ingest MCTs, that you're going to have some unpleasant side effects. Now, the question is, uh, are there ways to work around that uh, to maybe, in theory, at least get some advantages from ingesting MCTs? And and perhaps there could be. I mean, some studies suggest that after a few days of of gradually increasing the dose, that helps to alleviate some of those side effects. So instead of just starting off with one big dose at once, you know, right before exercise, which is what some of the studies did, you would gradually work your way up over the course of a few days or four or five days. And that helps to improve tolerance to um, those higher dosages, or you spread out the dosages in smaller amounts. And that may be an effective way to, uh, to improve gastrointestinal tolerance of MCT ingestion. That said, I'm not aware really of many studies uh, that have shown a benefit in terms of performance, but, you know, like I mentioned, the, uh, the supplementation protocols that they used maybe weren't always ideal in terms of trying to minimize some of those gastrointestinal side effects that can occur if you um, ingest a, a good amount of it all in one sitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. Uh, so kind of going from, so let's say that answers, what, what we've talked about so far answers a lot of questions about, you know, if you're struggling kind of nailing that nutrition strategy, some of the some of the recommendations and, and things that I read from the book, they kind of are kind of more marginal gains that you can get on top of once you've nailed the nutrition would be kind of temperature. And then one of the more interesting ones that I read that I wasn't aware of before was the swishing of the carbohydrate mm-hmm. and then spitting it out. Yeah, that's something that's been studied really the last probably 15 years. I think the, real, the original idea was they were doing a study on carbohydrate feeding for a fairly short exercise task in a study, it was like 60 minutes or something like that, or 90 minutes. And um, they saw improvement in performance, but it wasn't due to any changes in like actual metabolic markers. So they thought maybe it's a perceptual thing. And they ended up doing some studies later on, just asking people to swish carbohydrate in their mouth, the beverage, spit it out, you know, maybe do that four or five times over a 60 minute bout of exercise. And, you know, they found that, yeah, it did, it did improve um, work capacity performance as compared to something like swishing a placebo beverage that has an artificial sweetener in it or uh, drinking water or swishing water. There's a variety of controls that they've used. So it's, it's not just about the sweetness because a lot of the studies have used an artificially sweetened placebo uh, to kind of control for that effect. So it seems like there's something actually unique about this structure maybe of carbohydrate activating certain receptors in the mouth, the oral cavity to communicate with your brain. And then those changes in brain activity lead to uh, a better ability to maintain, you know, muscular contraction. Mm-hmm. What I'll say is practically speaking, it seems to only really make sense to do this for something that lasts probably like 30 to 60 minutes. Yeah. Once you get beyond 60 minutes, then actually delivering the fuel, um, makes more sense because you're, you know, if you're doing something really intense for 60 to 90 minutes or beyond, you're going to be running low on glycogen levels and actually delivering the carbohydrate is going to be more advantageous than just swishing it around in the mouth. Yeah. You don't, you're not going to run out of glycogen. So if there's going to be a benefit, it's going to be perceptual. Yeah. And uh, was your speculation as well in the book tied to kind of it, 
I might have just have thought of this myself, but I feel like it was what I had read was that it was basically kind of a, a, a soothing effect in that it allowed your body to have the perception that more fuel was on the way. So your willingness to liberate more energy from glycogen was higher, kind of, kind of, you know, just, just a calming effect. And then your ability to like spit out hepatic glucose was higher because it, it you basically calmed your, your brain is getting the signal that it's going to receive. Yeah. yeah. It's a good question in terms of, does it change things metabolically in terms of, you know, blood glucose or, mm -hmm. Uh, the way that your liver is is breaking down glycogen or putting out glucose into the blood, um, I you know I don't know that there's a whole lot of metabolic difference between a carbohydrate swish versus a artificially sweetened swish. I, Percept what it seems to be is they've done these MRI studies where you see these brain regions light up. I so, so my guess is it's more um, central nervous system mm. uh, control. Would be the more the mechanism probably involved. Now, if, if somebody is working harder because of that, you might see a, a larger breakdown of glycogen because of it. Mm. A, a larger breakdown of glycogen may be a consequence of swishing a carbohydrate beverage because you're more willing to work harder. But you know, I, it's it's yeah. It, there haven't been a lot of mechanistic studies. I'll say yeah, that. yeah. That would be interesting to see those for sure. I, I yeah. know. I'm, I, I guess I'm kind of bringing in some different research into my analysis. Uh, I know kind of in, in the, in the space of people that are very interested now, nowadays in like looking at their blood glucose constantly. Mm -hmm. So we're in CGMs. I know that they have done either maybe some studies, but certainly anecdotal people recognize that taking on like a sweetened coffee, stevia sweetened or, you know, sucralose sweetened. So Splenda, uh, that those didn't have any alteration of blood glucose, but then obviously normal sugar, did and, and it was pretty rapid yeah. so they, they were speculating that like like you kind of mentioned that maybe a unique receptor on the tongue is actually triggering kind of that that glucose output or some you know an insulin insulogenic response yeah the mouth um in the oral cavity and even further down in the gi tract i mean there's the um receptors and sensory tissue that respond to all sorts of stuff so just mm -hmm. to take this a little bit further there's other studies that have used caffeine mouth rinsing. There's studies mm -hmm. used uh, menthol. Um, there's a variety of kind of nutrition compounds or nutrition-like compounds that are now being studied as ways to enhance performance, um, either through increases in motor output or like in hot environments, that's menthol, swishing a beverage that has menthol on it has been used as a way to just get a cooling effect, mm. even if it doesn't actually lower body temperature. So greater appreciation for the more of the perceptual side of things mm. i mean obviously there's biology behind that you know there's things going on in your brain um that are responsible for any improvements in performance it's not like it's just magic mm -hmm. uh, but that's there's, there's definitely a growing appreciation appreciation for those sorts of things in the yeah. realm of sport nutrition for sure yeah absolutely and that and that kind of ties into some some of what you talk about at the end of the book which is how kind of our psychological stressors will affect our GI symptomatology. So could you, could you touch on that a little bit with respect to like competition, anxiety, how that kind of plays with gastric emptying, plays with motility in our GI tract? Yeah. Yeah, it's one where I, I've been more interested in that in the last few years uh, because I was just surprised when I looked around to see what studies were on that in athletes specifically, there really wasn't a whole lot which is just kind of shocking because there's so many stories of, of athletes kind of anecdotally having, you know, issues with their gut because of nerves, jitters, uh, pregame anxiety, things like that. When you go to Amazon and the Portage on lines are, you know, it's like a line for Disney world, essentially. <laughs> um, so yeah, we we started off just very basically doing some correlational studies. Uh, there's at least been three we've done now that have shown modest size associations between stress, anxiety, and various GI issues, and, and usually runners and triathletes is what we've done these studies in. Um, so there's definitely correlation. You know, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation. So we need to be a little bit careful about uh, overstating what that shows. But the, the associations are about as big as any other predictor of GI issues in athletes, like age, training experience, um, some of those things that are consistently 
associated with a higher rate of, of gastrointestinal issues in athletes, endurance athletes. Uh, since then, we, I've got a PhD student who has just wrapped up doing an intervention study looking at breathing uh, exercises, daily breathing exercises on uh, GI symptoms, anxiety in distance runners. So hopefully that'll be published in the next half a year or something like that. Uh, so we're trying to now do some intervention work to say, okay, if you do have elevations in anxiety and stress um, and you bring that down through, you know, whether it be slow, deep breathing, cognitive behavior therapy, whatever else, uh, is that going to manifest as improvements in, in GI symptoms? Because there's definitely a very tight link between your brain and your gut. Yeah. I mean, uh, they talk to one another constantly. There's a lot of information that actually goes up from your gut to your brain via the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's studies that show what you put into the stomach, even if you blind people to what is in their stomach, if you just put it through a feeding tube, it impacts activation in the brain mm -hmm. um, and mood and how people feel. So, yeah, I mean, we know from other disorders like IBS and dyspepsia that, you know, stress and anxiety have an impact on those types of conditions. So it, it shouldn't be a surprise that athletes who are more stressed and anxious uh, may be more susceptible to some of these gut issues. Um, now, what we do about that, you know, we're still trying to figure out is, yeah. is it something really modifiable uh, to what extent and, you know, what are the best ways to do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I guess maybe to, to kind of start to wrap things up uh, for our audience, maybe we could run through kind of some common uh, GI symptoms and maybe just do a quick kind of background as to what might be the cause of those. Uh, sure. Yeah. So kind of some that, some that I listed in the show notes that I sent you were the, the main ones that I think about is the ones that I've personally dealt with and, you know, mainly during running among yeah. other things. We're bloating, side stitch, and, you know, diarrhea are the main ones that mm -hmm. I think about. Bloating, yeah, that's one that uh, has a variety of causes. I mean, you think the term bloating, it, it kind of is specific to gas, right? I mean, it, people will use the term bloating to mean a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. But I guess to me, what would separate bloating from fullness is, you know, you could be full after a meal, but bloating is almost more like a distension mm -hmm. often from, you know, either the actual production of gas or a perception of, of, of the feeling like that's going on. Mm -hmm. So bloating could be worsened by, you know, things that do cause gas production. I mean, it could be malabsorption of carbohydrate because if, you know, that carbohydrate isn't getting absorbed, the bacteria in your intestine and your colon, they're going to ferment that. And some of the byproduct of that is going to be gas. So, you know, this, it's a common side effect of something like lactose intolerance. You know, someone who has lactose intolerance, if they decide to go and uh, down a pint of ice cream or, you know, drink 16 ounces of milk or 20 ounces of milk, you know, they may experience bloating among several other side effects, um, yeah, intestinal side effects from that decision. But it can also be made worse by stress and anxiety. I mean, there's sort of a, when people feel stressed or anxious, most GI symptoms seem to be perceived worse. And that can include something like bloating. It, it's tied to something called visceral hypersensitivity. You mm. just are kind of more hypersensitive to stimuli in your gut. Mm. Um, you do in part because of a higher amount of stress or anxiety. So bloating is a symptom that certainly has been noted to be prevalent in you know, disorders like IBS and dyspepsia and, and can be made uh, acutely worse by inducing stress and anxiety in somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, beyond that, I mean, there's other studies that you just get people too much carbohydrate, um, fill up their stomach, and they will report a higher rating of bloating too. You know, whether it's actually bloating or fullness, I mean, sometimes it's just, it depends how you define a symptom for somebody, what they'll report. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. bloating to me is, is, is actually gas buildup. I don't know that that's actually the way people respond to that when they're asked, but that would be what separates it uh, from fullness to me. Yeah. And that's, it, yeah. And basically after reading the book, that was kind of, I opened my eyes a little bit to maybe looking more at the composition, the meals that I was having kind of pre and post uh, activity and really, you know, looking at what the concentration of carbohydrate was. And I was like, oh, I'm just passing a bunch of extra carbohydrate to my large intestine. It's getting fermented. So kind of modifying. Yeah. 
really? and they're also looking at fiber intake too. I mean, if you fiber is great for health, but sometimes if you're you know stressed or you're or going uh, before a competition and you, you want to minimize uh, the chances of that, then I mean, just taper it down for a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess the the second one would be side stitch. Yeah, that one's definitely interesting. It's kind of it's kind of a GI symptom, but it's kind of not. You know, it it uh, is one that has been studied a fair amount. Um, Darren Morton is the guy who's probably done the most research on it. You know, he's written written a couple of review papers on it, talking about kind of a lot of the potential causes of side stitch. Um, there's this parietal peritoneum theory where there's this kind of lining inside your gut that uh, is potentially irritated, especially with jostling type movements, running, horseback riding, other types of movements where there's a lot of vertical up and down motion seems to be worse for side stitch. So there's probably actually something physical mm-hmm. going on um, that is is making that worse in those types of activities. So mm-hmm. that's one potential explanation. But there's also some studies that have linked uh, nutritional intake to worsening of side stitch. So mm-hmm. uh, ingesting, you know, too much concentrated carbohydrate beverage or ingesting um, uh, too much uh, fat or protein or something like that before exercise could also potentially make it worse. Uh, We actually are trying to publish a study right now that looked at stress and anxiety as a a set of factors that relates to side stitch. And we have some interesting results there that hopefully will be published in the next couple of months. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one where there's a lot of potential explanations. Uh, intervention-wise, changing your your pre-race intake or your pre-exercise intake. Uh, also, uh, working on your breathing. There's been some studies where they've changed breathing patterns during exercise and it seems to help a little bit. Wearing a supportive sort of belt around the abdomen has worked in some settings. Uh, if people are interested, I would suggest that they check out some of those review papers by Darren Morton because... Uh, he's kind of the expert in it and he's covered you know the vast majority of potential causes and solutions um, yeah. to side stitch so it's a kind of an interesting one in that it's you know people associate it with the gi tract but it may be kind of um uh, a separate entity but also related in a way yeah yeah interesting have you uh, had issues with side stitch during your oh absolutely uh, what have you done so most commonly, most commonly I get it training, not necessarily racing. And it'll usually be when I, when I train later in the day and I've had several meals. So mm-hmm. I've always just associated it with like fullness, just in my kind of abdominal cavity in general, causing some sort of like muscle. Yeah. And for me, it's always just been the breathing techniques really that have been able yeah, yeah. to kind of, and you know, sometimes they don't work that great, but sometimes they're a game changer and I can stop briefly walk, do kind yeah. of a breathing exercise uh, which for me is usually I just think about the sensation of breathing through a straw and that seems to help or just kind of a very mm-hmm. slow and focused uh, breath in and out. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes that completely alleviates it. I'm able to get right back into the training session. They've actually, there's been some correlations between bloating and, and uh, ETAP or side stitch mm-hmm. in some studies that they've done. So just the severity of those symptoms tend to correlate with one another. Yeah. And that goes along with, you know, if you're eating too much or the wrong type of thing, um, you know, maybe it is putting some pressure on that uh, uh, peritoneum uh, lining that is making it worse. Um, so yeah. the joint of running plus that extra pressure and, and maybe that that's causing some issues. Yeah, absolutely. And then, okay, so the last one would be diarrhea or loose stool with running. That seems to be one of the, yeah. you know, the runner's trots. That's, that's yep. the, right? Yeah, uh, you know, that one is in some cases you know, you're going to have problems. I think it just depends on the scenario. Um, but there are some things you can take a look at to try and lessen the odds or, or lessen the severity. Uh, similar to the bloating thing, if you have things that are unabsorbed in your gut, that's going to cause problems because it'll bring fluid a lot of times out into that luminal space and it'll, it'll create basically loose stools that'll pass through you more quickly, uh, increases the urges to have to use the restroom. So overfueling, choosing the wrong type of carbohydrate can do it. Uh, you can also have issues from poor supplementation choices, you know, um, 
sodium bicarbonate for maybe more of our shorter distance people who are middle distance runners if you're using that as a supplement if you didn't do a a appropriate uh, supplementation protocol that's a notable symptom of, of sodium bicarbonate mm -hmm. exogenous ketones becoming a more popular supplement some uh, reports that it can cause loose stools uh, in some individuals uh, caffeine for some people can do it too so i would say if you're sensitive to caffeine just don't do high dosages particularly in the two hours before your runs because that may exacerbate the issue particularly if you are going to be stressed you know, so we know caffeine works for performance in a lot of cases, but most studies have been done in relatively low stress environments. Um, so mixing competition stress with high dose caffeine um, sometimes is in a, a good recipe for uh, for GI function. So I would say just be cautious about that yeah. for sure. With uh, with on the bicarb front is a way for people to get around that, right? We have like the AMP human PR lipophilized kind of bicarb lotion with that kind of so is the bicarb uh, problem, is that actually happening in the GI tract or is that elsewhere that's causing GI symptoms? It's oral. So it's if you just take baking soda, um, you know, orally, uh, usually it's it's most problematic when you do just one dose acute, like 90 minutes before or two hours before your event. Uh, that's when most of the problems occur. I'm actually doing a loading protocol right now just to just to try it out. I'm doing a 5K. This not 5K really isn't probably the right event for sodium bicarbonate, but I think there's maybe some chance that it would be beneficial. Um, so I'm actually doing it right now, but I'm using a enteric coated formulation. So it 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 uh, doesn't get digested as much in the stomach. And the problem with getting digested in the stomach is if you have that bicarbonate interacting with stomach acid, it produces a lot of CO2. And yeah. that can cause bloating and, and yeah. tension. So if it gets into the small intestine and doesn't get um, neutralized as readily in the stomach, then there's typically fewer side effects. So beyond that, I'm also doing a multi-day regimen where I'm taking smaller dosages spread throughout the day, as opposed to one big dose right beforehand. Yeah. Or I haven't really had, I've had some very, very, I think, mild kind of rumblings um, in, in the stomach. But other than that, I've not really had any significant GI issues from it. So the combination of the intracoded version and then um, uh, using a multi-day protocol seemed seem to work fine for me. Nice. nice. Well, I guess to close things out, uh, the, the last two things would be just kind of some practical takeaways and kind of summation for, you know, your everyday athlete at home listening. And then where can people find you? Yeah, I would say in terms of practical summations, uh, maybe think about if you are regularly experiencing these issues, starting to record kind of what symptoms you're actually experiencing and when you're experiencing and what things are happening around that. It becomes, I think, pretty challenging to identify and figure out solutions to these gut issues unless you really know what specific symptoms you're experiencing and in what context. Because mm -hmm. a big part of the book is that, you know, things that cause nausea may be different from the things that cause cramping or loose stools or bloating. You know, symptoms have different causes. So if you're you know, more experiencing nausea in this situation and you're experiencing more cramping and loose stools in this situation, that can tell you two different things. Mm. I think getting an idea about um, what you're experiencing specifically and when in what context can be helpful for uh, trying to figure out a solution to that problem, whether it's you just figuring it out or bringing that to a dietitian or um, a sports performance coach or someone else who might be able to help figure out what's going on, who has experience with some of these things um, would be, a, I think, a main message to people. Um, other than that, I would say, you know, practicing what you're planning on doing, spending some time on it, don't overlook it. It's, it's very something very easy to overlook in terms of your feeling, your hydration. If you just kind of improvise, you know, during your race or something like that, uh, you know, the odds are it may not go as well. So uh, spend some time working on some of these things and, and trying to figure out a plan that works for you, uh, given your own experience and your own physiology and, and your own gastrointestinal function and tolerance. Uh, and that's going to be, I think, helpful for most athletes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if, if people want to find your work, uh, where, where should, where's the best place to do that at? 
Uh, I am on Twitter. I always have to look up my Twitter handle. How much I'm uh, actively posting on there, but it, uh, it's sportsrd uh, underscore PhD. You know, I post studies on there that we do, and uh, also share stuff that you know I find interesting, particularly as it relates to you know some of the research on GI issues in athletes. So certainly, they can check me out there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Dr. Wilson, thanks so much for your time. Uh, author of The Athlete's Gut, highly recommend. Uh, see you all in the next one. Sure. Yeah. Appreciate the invite and thanks yeah. for uh, uh, putting the word out on the book. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great book. Honestly, wealth of info. So thanks for doing it. Phenomenal. Yeah, thank you. Always, it's always nice to have, you know, people doing good science on the front lines, kind of pushing in sports performance. I, I like, I come from a very like clinical background, but I'm also an athlete. So I yeah. really appreciate when things are being done on that front too. Cool. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Have a good one. Yep. You too.